G'day everyone. It's great to be back at church. Well, it's not great to be back from holidays, but if there's something good about coming back from the beach, it's uh, coming to be with our church family. Uh, we've been away the last couple of weeks, but uh, I'm excited because we're starting a new sermon series, as Troy alluded to. Uh, we're starting a series in the book of Acts. Uh, I know I do have a tendency to say that every book we're looking at is my favourite book of the Bible, but uh, there's, there's something actually proper about that, if you think about it, because the, God's Word is living and active, and uh, that means whatever book you're reading at the moment is the book that God is speaking to you from, so it should be your favourite book. But there should, I think, all Christians should have a particular soft spot for this book that we're looking at this term, the book of Acts, because Acts is, for Christians, our family history, if you like. It's the, the Ancestry.com for us as Christians. Has anyone ever done one of those Ancestry.com things and gone back and searched for your family? Has anyone done that? No one. That's amazing. You, none of you have done that. Well, there you go. Let me tell you, as you get a bit older, like me, I'm an old person now, you start to, get, you start to sort of think about your family. And I, I did something terrible to my kids a couple of years ago. We were on long service leave in England. I made them visit distant relatives in the north of England. We, you know, you wonder if they're going to be axe murderers or something, but, but we knocked on the door and they were normal and nice, so there you go. But as you start to, to get nostalgic, you sort of think, I'd like to know where I came from, what's my background? Well, that is the book of Acts for Christians. We are the result of the message of Jesus going out that starts in Acts chapter 1 that we're looking at tonight. So over the next term, we'll get the first half, uh, we'll come to the second half later on, probably later in the year or early next year. Uh, but I really hope you get excited about this. I want you to read along because we'll be looking at a chapter each week, but we can't sort of see everything that happens in the chapter. Read along. Uh, every few weeks we'll have a question time. Bring your questions, uh, but I hope you really get into it. So let's start. Turn to Acts chapter 1. Uh, but as we do, we need to have a, a quick intro. What is the book of Acts? And the first thing you need to see or know about the book of Acts is it's the second book in a series. So Acts was written by Luke, who obviously wrote Luke's Gospel. It's a bit of a giveaway. Uh, and they, the, these two books, though, Luke and Acts, weren't designed as separate books. So it's not like Paul wrote Romans and Galatians, or Peter wrote 1 Peter and 2 Peter, or John wrote John and Revelation. He, he actually wrote them as volume 1 and volume 2 of the same story. So if you think, for me anyway, in my generation, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back. That's, that's Luke and then Acts. So right back at the start of Luke's Gospel, Luke actually told us why he was writing the two books, why he was writing Luke and why he was writing Acts. And he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to gather together all the eyewitness accounts about Jesus. That's really important. He's saying, I am writing history. This is a biography. It's not just a story. I'm writing history. I'm getting together all the people who saw everything, who heard everything Jesus said and did, and I'm going to draw it together. And I'm going to do that so, look on the screen, Luke chapter 1, verse 4 so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you've been instructed. It's so that you can be certain about Jesus. That's why this is written. So you can be certain about the gospel. That's what we've been instructed. It's all written so we might know the truth about Jesus. Now in volume one, he got up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it finishes actually with Jesus ascending to heaven. That's, that's what happens in the first volume. And so you might think, well, isn't that the end of the story about Jesus? 
How can Acts also be? Isn't Acts now sort of the, the story after Jesus? And even what we call it sometimes makes you think that. We call it the Acts of the Apostles. It's sort of like, yeah, the Gospels are about Jesus. Now we're getting the story of Peter and Paul. And that's true to some extent. But I think this is really important to see. Luke wants us to see that this is still Jesus' story. That Jesus' ministry didn't end with his ascension. Come to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He says, I wrote the first narrative, that's Luke's gospel, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, what do you see there? Well, you see that it's Jesus' ascension that is the hinge between these two books. That's, that's the thing that... that ends Luke's gospel and starts the book of Acts. But what you also see is that the first book was about what Jesus began, and I think that word is really important, began to do and teach until he ascended to heaven. And it's important because he keeps keeps seeming to be saying, now in book two, now I'm going to show you what Jesus is continuing to do. He's just doing it in a different way, because now what he's doing is he is doing it through his apostles and through the work of his Holy Spirit. I think it's really important to see this. It's not that the book of Luke is about Jesus and this is about something different. It's all about Jesus and the book of Acts is about how Jesus continues to work just now through this other means, through his apostles, through the Spirit. So now we're going to meet those two characters who are the focus of the first couple of chapters, in fact the whole book of Acts, the apostles and the Holy Spirit in verses 1 to 5. So it was through the apostles, the 12 men, remember back in the Gospels, he took 12 particular disciples, trained them up, that was how he was going to continue his work. And so what it tells us is, for the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and when he ascended to heaven, Jesus gave them a masterclass in the Bible. You know when you think, wouldn't you have loved to have been there when something happened? Wouldn't you have loved to have been there when your team won the grand final? You know, wouldn't you have, which is before, for some of us with our teams, before we were born and that sort of thing. But wouldn't you have loved to have been there for that 40 days as Jesus gave them this masterclass? Look at verse 3. It says, After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus explained the kingdom of God to them. I think what he did was he opened up the scriptures. He opened up the Old Testament as as we know it. And he explained to them how it was all about him. How every promise of the whole Old Testament found its fulfillment in Christ. How he is God's Messiah. How he was bringing the kingdom of God. And he explained to them actually the things they then share with us in the rest of the New Testament. So it says many of the things he taught them would have been what they then taught us in the letters of the New Testament. But even with that masterclass, there was something more they needed. They weren't yet ready to grasp it all, to get underway. They were still waiting for Jesus' greatest gift to them, which is, of course, the Holy Spirit. Look with me from verse 4. It says, while he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptised with water, but you'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus had told them many times, I will not leave you alone. Even after I go, I will not, you will not be left alone because I'm going to send you my Spirit and my Spirit will equip you for what you need to do. So now Jesus is saying, it's nearly time, just a few more days. It's actually important to understand we often sort of say, wouldn't, I, wouldn't it have been great? In fact, I said it just before. Wouldn't it have been great to be there and see Jesus? 
Wouldn't it have been great to, to be there and walk alongside Jesus and actually hear Jesus teach? Jesus makes it very clear. We're, the, the disciples are better off after he has gone because now they have the Holy Spirit which enables them to actually understand and grasp everything he's done. We're in a better position than if we were alive when Jesus was around. But Jesus had one more thing to teach them before the Holy Spirit came. And he had to give them what we call the Great Commission. So come with me to verses 6 to 11. Verse 6, the disciples asked Jesus a question. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? That seems like a really strange question for us. That's because we're not Old Testament Jews. We're not waiting for the Messiah to come and make Israel great again. And so they're thinking, they're thinking so is Jesus finally going to get rid of the Romans? Is Jesus actually going to restore Israel and make us a political power in the world like we were always meant to be? Is that what he's talking about with the coming of the Spirit? Is that what's going to happen? But in asking that question, the disciples are showing just how little they've still grasped. I had to laugh. John Calvin, the great reformer, he wrote about this verse and he said, there are as many errors in this question as there are words. When I was finishing my law degree, I was teaching accounting at uni and I remember marking an exam where someone got nothing right. And that's like the disciples here. It's such a cut down. There are as many errors in this question as there are words. So what have they got so wrong? What have they got wrong in particular? I'll just write a couple of things. Firstly, they've made an error of timing. See, look at verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. This is a constant theme in the New Testament. God's timing is God's timing. You cannot know when Jesus is going to return and bring in his kingdom once and for all. Whenever the Bible talks about Jesus' return, it says it could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be in a thousand years. If someone tells you, I know when Jesus is going to return, I've read the Bible and I've worked it out, that is the surest sign that they are a false teacher. Only God knows when Jesus will return and bring in his kingdom once and for all. But secondly, and more importantly... The disciples hadn't understood the nature of Jesus' kingdom and the role they had to play in it. Look at verse 8, which is, I think, actually the key verse for the book of Acts. It's like the purpose statement of the book of Acts. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, the disciples' big problem was they thought... Jesus' kingdom was a political kingdom. They thought it was a kingdom of this world, if you like. They'd misunderstood. Their picture was actually far too small. They thought it was just a national kingdom. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is for the whole world, the whole universe, in fact. And it's going to spread my kingdom to the ends of the earth. It's for people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And Jesus' kingdom is not going to spread by conquest, and it's not going to spread by politics. It's not like a normal this world kingdom which grows on the back of armies invading and wars and treaties and, and political manoeuvrings. No, Jesus' kingdom spreads by people telling other people about the king. That's how it spreads. By people telling other people about the king and then by the spirit helping people follow the king, trust in the king. 
come to faith in the King. Jesus is saying, my kingdom will come, but only after you have taken the news of the King to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus is saying to them, that's your job. With the help of the Holy Spirit, you are the witnesses. You've seen everything I said and did. That's what, that's what they had. So now you have to go to Jerusalem. And then you've got to go to Judea and Samaria, the country around Jerusalem. But then you've got to go to the ends of the earth and tell people about Jesus. Now, we are not witnesses in the same sense. We are not apostles. None of us were there and heard Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount. None of us saw Jesus die on the cross. None of us saw Jesus risen from the dead. But that mission of the apostles continues to be our mission. Troy talked about how today in many days is the first Sunday of the year, even though it's the last Sunday of January, because it's after the Australia Day long weekend. But this is a great passage to start the year with, because this is our mission and it does not change from year to year. It will be the mission of the church until Jesus returns to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Do you know the only reason we are given in the scriptures, you can search all the scriptures, the only reason we are given for why Jesus has not returned and established his kingdom once and for all, the only reason is that he wants more people to hear about him. The only reason he wants more people to come to know him, more people to trust in him, more people to be saved. Why are we still here? Why hasn't Jesus returned? It's so that we might continue to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so having given them and us that task, that mission, Jesus left. He was gone. He ascends to the heavens to sit at his Father's right hand. And I love this wonderful comical picture you get in verse 10. Look with me. The apostles are standing there. I can just visualise this picture. Standing there with their mouths open staring at the heavens. You would too. Jesus had ascended into the heavens in front of you. And then two angels come to them. Look at verse 11. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. I just love this moment. They're saying, what are you doing there standing, staring at the heavens? Jesus has given you a job to do. Why on earth are you looking up there? Go and do it. Go and do the job he's given you before he comes back in the same way. It's actually just a wonderful reminder that the key to the Christian life is understanding these times in which we live. The key to the Christian life is understanding that we live in the in-between time. There are two great moments of history and you need to understand that we're living in the period in between them. The two events, firstly the past is what Jesus has done in his life and his death and his resurrection. But then it's the future, what is to come, his return to bring in his kingdom once and for all. When you understand that, that they are the two great sort of pillars of history and and we live in the bit in between, when you understand that, you understand that to be a Christian is to be a pilgrim. You you don't have a home. This world is not our home anymore. The book of 1 Peter calls us aliens and strangers. And to be a Christian is to be a missionary. See, while we are here, we exist to see the message of the King go to all people. The book of Acts just demands that we live and breathe the gospel in everything. We live in the era of mission. Jesus has not delayed his return so that we can finish our education. Jesus has not delayed his return so we can buy a house. He hasn't 
delayed our return so we can go on that next trip we have played. He hasn't delayed his return so that we can find that husband or wife. He hasn't delayed his return for any of those things. He has delayed his return so that more people might hear about him, repent and be saved. We live in the time of mission. Now, some people will go as missionaries, like the Blaus who we've sent to Argentina, like the Newbies who we've, we've sent to the Philippines, like the McDowells who, who we've sent to Paraguay. Others of us will quietly witness in our workplaces and invite that work colleague to the life course. Others of us will quietly witness to our families. We will all support the gospel going out to others. But the point is we will all be involved in that mission. We all have different parts to play. But to be a Christian is to be involved in Christ's mission. That's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. So as we start this year and as we start these studies in the book of Acts, let's commit ourselves, or for most of us, I pray, recommit ourselves to having the mission of Christ at the forefront of our minds and driving everything about us. In many ways, that's the main point of this first chapter of Acts, and that is what I want you to have ringing in your ears Uh, as we carry on for the next few weeks through this book. But our chapter has two other little incidents that I want to look at that I think are just really encouraging. So the first is verses 12 to 14, and it's just this wonderful little aside about the importance of prayer. The disciples did what Jesus asked. They went back to Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit. But they didn't just sort of sit there twiddling their thumbs. I think when we hear the word waiting, we think do nothing. That's what we often think, or, or play on my phone, you know. That's, that's why I always take a book wherever I go, so I never waste time waiting. But they didn't do it. Look at verse 14. As they were waiting, all these were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I think this is such a wonderful little picture of the early church. Do you know, at this point, there were only 120 of them. That's every Christian in the world at that point. 120 of them with the job of taking the gospel. There are more people here tonight than were in that first church. Isn't that amazing? It's a bit daunting. But as they waited, what did they do? They devoted themselves to prayer. And you see this modelled all through the book of Acts. We are a people with a mission, but if you understand the mission, we will also be a people devoted to prayer. Because in the end, our mission is God's work and takes the work of God's Holy Spirit. So the best thing we can do is pray. Notice also, if you look here, it isn't a command. Sometimes people read the book of Acts and and, and they think church has to be just like they did it. Sometimes this happens. People come and they've read a bit of the book of Acts and they go, why is now church exactly like the early church? Let me tell you, the early church got a lot wrong as well. You don't want to be like the early church. We're going to see that over the next few weeks. It's not, the book of Acts is not written as a command to how you should do everything. It's just describing what they did. But at this point, I think it shows you church at its best. A church at its best is united in prayer. People devoted to praying together. Do you know, the times I love the most, as I look back on my time here, the times I've loved the most in our church life are times where for some reason we've been especially devoted to praying together as a church. Whether there's been a particular crisis that's led us to prayer or whether it's been prayer for mission especially, but there is just something wonderful 
when you see brothers and sisters in Christ united in prayer. It's one of my favourite things if I, as, after 6.30 church is standing at the back and watching and seeing heads bowed and people praying together. Just brothers and sisters in Christ bringing things to our Lord in prayer. It is the most wonderful thing. So I want to say again, uh, it is a great thing for us to commit to as we start this year. It's a great passage today to start. As our gospel team start, keep this in mind. Let us be devoted to prayer together. Let's be committed to prayer. It's a wonderful thing to see that in our church. If we turn back to our passage, there's this one last little part of the chapter. And I've called it, just for the cricket fans amongst us, choosing a new 12th man. This is uh, verses 15 to 26. See, as they gathered, there was a problem. There was an empty chair in the room. Jesus had appointed 12 disciples, but now Judas had done his business and he was missing. And so Peter stands up to address that elephant in the room, or not in the room, so to speak, and he reminds everyone of what Judas did, of how horrible it was, how he betrayed our Lord. But then he also reminds people of what happened to Judas. It was quite graphic as it was read for us before, wasn't it? Judas betrayed Jesus and so he was judged because of it. But what Peter especially wants people to understand is that what happened with Judas was all part of God's plan. So you can imagine people would have been worried. They would have thought, what, was God not in control? How could he let Jesus die? How did this happen? How could he let one of his own disciples betray him? I thought he knows everything. How does this work? He wants you to know, no, 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 what Judas did was actually all part of God's plan. In fact, the Old Testament had prophesied that it would happen. Now, it's really important to understand this. That doesn't absolve Judas of responsibility. It doesn't make him a puppet. We need to remember this. God being in control doesn't absolve us of responsibility for what we did. Uh, He was guilty of a horrible crime, as his horrible fate shows, But the point is, what happened was part of God's plan. Look at verse 16. See, that's why Peter stresses. He says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, spoke in advance about Judas. See, nothing catches God by surprise. It wasn't like he was surprised. Oh, Judas has has betrayed Jesus. Now we've got to go to plan B. It was all part of plan A. And so down at verse 20, you can look these up later. He quotes Psalm 69, and then he quotes Psalm 109 to show how God's word said this would happen. But he also points out that God's word said Judas needs to be replaced. But how on earth do you replace one of the 12 apostles? Jesus had chosen them. You know, what what are they going to do? How do you just conscript in a new person? Well, as they thought about a replacement, it's really important to see not just anyone could take this role. You notice they cast lots that means they rolled the dice or they flipped the coin would be the modern uh, equivalent for it and it fell on Matthias. People read that and I think they sort of think they just left it up to God to decide who should be the new 12th apostle. It's like, you know, Matthias was just walking past and they said, hey, the lot's fallen on you, Maddie, come on in, you're, a, you're an apostle, there you go. That's not what happened. There were important qualifications. Look at verse 21. It says, therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these it is necessary that one became a witness with us of his resurrection. See what the qualification was? have to remember the role of the apostles. They were to be witnesses of everything Jesus said and did and especially of his resurrection. 
So their job was to be a witness to that. So they looked around, they said, who was here back three years ago? When, on that first day when Jesus went down to the River Jordan and John the Baptist baptised him, who was there when he preached the Sermon on the Mount? Who, who was there when he, when he healed that man? And who was there especially when he was raised from the dead and saw him risen? To be an apostle, you needed to have seen all that and that left only two possible candidates. Joseph, also called Barsabas or Justice or Matthias. And because they were both suitable, what did they do? They prayed about it. And then they cast lots, fell to Matthias, and he was appointed. Now, at this point, again, I want to say to you, the book of Acts is not saying that is how you should make your decisions. So it's not encouraging you to toss a, a, a dice every time you've got to make a decision, and there you go. If, if you think that's how you make decisions, go get our recordings about making decisions from our uh, invest last year, and, and you'll get much more wisdom than that, I hope if my talks were worth anything. But anyway, uh, it's not saying that. We're not going to have a big set of dice at our AGM in March and just roll them and say, oh, sorry, Braden, you're out of parish council and, uh, and Jacob's in. You know, that's, uh, that's, not how you, that's not what you do. But it actually does give you a great model for decision-making here. Because you see, when you appoint people to leadership in the church, you need to look for the scriptural qualifications what do the scriptures say about what qualifications they need? What, is, what qualifications does God say we need for this position of leadership? And you'll notice in the scriptures that the qualifications for leadership are nearly always about character, nearly all about character and what we believe rather than giftedness like our world looks for. And then once you've sort of considered what the scriptures say, pray for wisdom, that's a great thing. And then if there's a clearly appropriate person, you appoint them. If that's more, if there are more than one who are equally qualified, and again, remember, it's the Bible's qualifications, well, if there's more than one, God doesn't specify how you should choose. We love voting because we've grown up in democracy, but rolling dice is just as good a system as voting if they're both equally qualified, and that's what happened here. But more important than that, what this passage reminds us of is the role of the apostles. They are the faithful eyewitnesses of what Jesus had said and done. Most importantly, they were the faithful eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And that's why, as these 12 were killed, they were not replaced. See, they replaced Judas, but once that 12 was set, and in a couple of chapters, James is going to be run through with a sword. I'm giving away the story, but anyway. They didn't replace him. We'll come to the Apostle Paul in a few weeks. He's a separate category. But the role of apostle is not a transferable role in the church. We don't have apostles like this in the church today. And that's why, as they neared their death, the apostles did two things. They didn't appoint more apostles. That's actually a mistake of the Roman Catholic Church. The idea that Peter could appoint another Peter, another, and they call it a pope, that sort of idea. That, that's not biblical. No, no, no. What did they do? They passed on their message to other trustworthy people. It's not about being an apostle, it's the message the apostles had. They passed that on and then what else did they do? They wrote it down for us in the scriptures. They gave us the New Testament. This is really, really important. No modern minister, no modern pastor is an apostle. I do not speak for Jesus in that sense. I am not like Peter or John or, or one of them. My job is to point you to the apostles' teaching. That's the authority. The New Testament 
is where we listen to the apostles. You see, my authority as your minister is only ever an authority to teach you the scriptures, to call you to follow the scriptures. The true authority is the apostolic gospel. Well, we'll finish it there for tonight. The stage is set for the book of Acts, and I hope you're looking forward to getting into it over the next few weeks. Next week, one of the most exciting passages in all of scripture is the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Uh, But as we finish tonight, I just want us to have two things in our mind, two things to set us on our way for these studies in Acts. The first is that reminder of our mission. This time we live in exists so that the gospel can be preached. That is our mission. That is what must drive us. But then secondly, we preach the gospel of the apostles. This is what we stick with, what they've recorded for us in the scriptures. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful book of Acts and we pray that our studies over this next term will be a great encouragement to us and a spur to us. But we thank you for this reminder of our mission. We long for the whole earth to know Jesus. We long for every person to find the salvation we have found in Christ. And so we pray that we would have that mission at the centre of our minds, not just as a church but as individuals as well, to take the gospel to all people. And Father, we thank you that the apostles have recorded that wonderful news for us in the scriptures. And so we pray that that is the message that we hold to and preach. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.